So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with the Modern Man, and here is what we have coming up for you today. You know as a parent and your child very frequently knows that they're in a place that is that you don't want to be in. And no matter how many toys you bring in, that un- undercurrent of pain is always there. I meet Martin, a fundraising father on a journey through grief, determined to improve children's lives. He'll tell you how. Plus... Some people are so absolutely stultified with the fear of potentially getting HIV that they almost see it as an easier option just to get it out of the way. Alex Fox considers the controversial sexual fantasy of deliberately contracting life-changing STIs. And Ollie Peart takes a trip to get a drip. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello to Evie, who says, Ollie, I was really pleased to hear your segment on prosopagnosia last week. See how it trips off the tongue now? Prosopagnosia. Uh, She says, as a prosopagnosic person... Uh, That is harder to say. Uh, As a prosopagnosic person, uh, I am a firm believer that the more people know about facial blindness, the easier life will be for those of us who suffer from it and are constantly, accidentally offending everybody. At least you have an excuse. I accidentally offend people all the time and I don't know why. I did think it was a bit of a shame, though, she says, that you had a non-sufferer speaking on our behalf. That is always a difficult thing, actually, uh, Evie. Sometimes we want to hear from people directly about their own lived experience, but we do ask people to get in touch with ideas for people we should interview. And Dr. Rachel came up and she was really interesting. And I guess the thing is, when we went to meet her, we didn't know that we would be making an episode about prosopagnosia. That's kind of how it rolls on this show sometimes. We went to go and meet her. It could have been an interview about facial attractiveness or something so it's not like we set out to make a show about your condition and then didn't speak to someone directly uh, affected by it but uh, but thank you for the email i'm glad that you enjoyed the show anyway um thank you as well to everybody who's donated beer money so far this series uh, a one-off paypal payment to support the show is fine but even better is a recurring monthly contribution equivalent to the price of a pint of beer uh, two people have set up one of those this week so my grateful thanks to mark ford and wait for it Nicholas Ford. Now, your donations were three days apart, but I am just curious whether are you guys brothers or husbands even? Are you related? Or is it just a coincidence that the only two people in the world who set up recurring donations to this show this week are both named Ford? 
Because I guess sometimes people who are related might encourage each other to donate. And I just wondered whether you'd guilt-tripped each other. Or it was like your New Year's resolution or something. Anyway, I know that Nick Ford is in Alberta, Canada, because he wrote in and said, Ollie, I've been a Man fan since the very beginning and have loved every single episode. Even I can't say that. Uh, You have given me immense entertainment during my commute over the years, he says, and you've also helped my relationship inside and outside the bedroom tremendously. I imagine that is more Alex's work than mine. Ollie, your interview with Rory Reid back in 2015 inspired me to create my own podcast for my employer. I am eternally grateful. Could I be my ambassador for the province of Alberta? Well, Nick, I've now read this in the intro. And uh, I like to save that ambassador stuff for the outro these days. So, um, no. Uh, Right, coming up in this episode, you will learn what Travada is. You will learn how to wangle free Wi-Fi in hospital. And you'll learn which Christmas carol stalled Alex Fox's singing career. Let's go. Time to test out trends. It's the zeitgeist with Ollie Peer. And let's skip the formal... Uh, greetings, Ollie, because we've got a lot of business to get through this week. Sure, and when have we ever had a formal greeting? Don't you remember the original episodes of the show where I was like, <laughs> yours faithfully, <laughs> Oliver Mann Esquire. Last week, Man Fan Sunil tasked you with the challenge of experimenting with a vitamin drip. Mm-hmm. You weren't keen. No. I think it's fair to say. I lost sleep over this challenge. You, and you're, I'm being, not, you're being serious? I'm being absolutely serious. Okay, why? Because I have a unreasonable fear of... Not needles necessarily, but anybody going anywhere near my vein. So I've said the word vein, and I now feel a little bit faint. Really? That's you? Yeah, it's that bad. And this is also bad. It's one of the reasons I haven't given blood. I've never given blood. And it's because the idea of anybody going near my vein, sticking something in it, and removing something, or putting anything in, puts the fear of God into me. Okay. so, like, not for a challenge for the show. No. In real life, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you one day to go and give blood. I'll go with you. Yeah, I actually have an incredibly rare blood type, so this is a good thing. I probably should do what this. What are you? ABRH negative? I am, I am AB rhesus negative. Are yeah. you? I am. I'm ABRH positive. Oh, what? Oh, hey. look at that. Yin and yang. We're in the right minority here. club. Yeah. So I want to overcome this fear, and I thought potentially this could be a, a route into it. You didn't mention any of this when we were recording last week. No, you were just sort of lightheartedly anxious. Because... If I'd have known you were genuinely having sleepless nights about it, it's not worth it for a magazine podcast, Ollie. You I could had have a, come up with a different challenge. I had a phone... Told Sunil to go fuck himself. No, look, I, I, I wanted to do this. I had a phone call with producer Matt uh, halfway through the week and I said, look, you're going to have to come with me. I'm that bad. This is really awful. He actually put my anxieties at rest a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's good I, at that, isn't he? He was very but good at that. he didn't change the fundamentals, though, did he? You still had to go and do it. Still had to go. <laughs> and, where, and I did. And he and he made me do it. And what I had to do is find a place where I could get this done, get this administered, and uh, and just pop along and go and have a chat. He said, no pressure. You don't have to have it done, but just go there. Yeah. What he was saying is, go there and have it done, yeah. otherwise you're fired. So what happened? Where did you go? So I went to a place called Get a Drip. One's in Canary Wharf and one's in Shoreditch in Box Park. Very trendy. Very and I looked in the window and I could see the drips. In They looked like um, Alka Pops in bags <laughs> dangling from the window in this sort of neon lit display. How medicinal and clinical is a place called Get a Drip in Box Park? Not very is the short answer. Sure. Yeah, because so, I went in and there's leather sofas, yeah, exactly. uh, like a Chesterfield style sofa there. And there was two guys at the back and I could catch them in my peripheral and they had the drips and they were receiving a drip treatment. I was not going to look. Were they just sitting there just like they were sitting having their hair cut? in the back. There's a little, you know, plant in the corner. 
perfectly relaxed environment. Stephanie was just on her phone. She's like, oh, hello there, how can I help? And I just asked her some questions about the process, how it works. What were her qualifications? Her qualifications, by the way, she's a doctor. Really? Yeah. They only hire people that are qualified to administer medicines. So paramedics, doctors or nurses. So there'll be nobody behind the counter, you know, Jim from Scunthorpe, who's there going, right, mate. Hmm. I don't know if that's how That's not how they talk in Scunthorpe, no. But whatever. It's consistent with your other regional attempts. And immediately I was at rest. But as I was talking to her... I realised that actually the panic that I would normally get in a in a hospital environment, in a doctor's environment, had gone. Mm. Okay, but what you're describing is the kind of environment you should go to if you do need to see a clinician, you know, go and find a private doctor somewhere on Harley Street or something to allay your fears. Mm. But this is an entirely unnecessary procedure, isn't it? Getting a vitamin uh, injected into your arm. Yes. So what did you learn about why people who were doing it are doing it? There are people that get this done that have real ailments, real problems, so HIV um, and other sort of chronic illnesses, but they can't get these vitamin drips through the NHS as readily. So they can go along, pay 50, 100 quid okay. for this place and get them administered. But there's also, this is a thing, right? Celebrities are doing it. Yeah, so uh, Adele... Fuck off. Yeah, so she, her LA tour, she would have these IV therapy, they call it, where they would go along to her, administer it, and it got her through an eight-night tour like it gives you energy it's supposed to boost your energy so you can get through those kinds of things i actually chatted to richard who's the ceo of get a drip he's the boss there and i Mm -hmm. said well give us the inside then who's the famous ones who've got you know who's having this stuff he said well we we actually have lots of famous people well we're actually quite discreet actually so i'm not going to tell you and he didn't tell me and he couldn't tell me he said you're gonna have to go and google it because i can't tell you because we signed this nda thing but he said we have lots and what on film sets and at gigs they actually request call outs what's the stuff they're actually putting in them so it's a mix. I actually have the menu with me. It's a little leaflet. It looks a little bit like a takeaway leaflet, doesn't it? Immunity drip, mm-hmm. £125. Wow. Yep. The beauty drip, wow, that's where they really like to get you, isn't it? Basic hydration plus multivit plus 1,200 milligrams of glutathione. And their next thing, this is the next big thing that they're talking about is going to happen, is bespoke vitamin drips. Okay, you're I'm- actually putting your fingers in the air as you said that, so I thought you were going to say vitamin suppositories. No. These are bespoke drips designed based on your DNA. So you, they take a DNA sample, which is a swab from your mouth or you spit in a thing. They analyse your DNA strand and then they create a customised vitamin drip based on your DNA. But what are the vitamins that people are lacking? I mean, I suppose that's what they tell you, right? But I mean, I get it if you're actually ill. But if you're not, doesn't your body really supply all the vitamins you need? It's better because it goes straight into your veins, right? So it doesn't have to go through your digestional tract. So that's a slower way for your body to absorb it. That's the technical side of it. But I put that to him as well. I was like, well, hang on a minute. I'm a healthy bloke, right? Mm. If I'm lacking in any kind of vitamins, it means I need to change my diet. Or if I'm knackered or or whatever, I need to change my lifestyle because I'm tired and I'm stressed. Mm. He wasn't having any of that. <laughs> he was like, no, it's not. You know, like we, we are facilitating people, allowing people to carry on with their lifestyle. So if you're hungover and you have, you know, you've been out and you've been partying hard, you can come in the next day and you can feel fresh and feel lovely. And after being in there for a few minutes, I did actually feel relaxed. I did have something done. Did you? I had my blood pressure taken. Okay. And well, I well had... Well done. If you were feeling genuinely anxious, I'm impressed that you bothered doing anything. I did. I had that. And I had the oxygenation test, which they check to make sure that you're not dying of any kind of cardiovascular disease, <laughs> which I had. That wasn't quite the challenge that you were No, posed. but good to know that I'm yeah, you're okay, living you? and breathing. Yeah. Um, and the big re- revelation was that I went to the back and I chatted to the two guys that were there having their drips done. So mm-hmm. I sat and spoke to a stranger with a drip, a needle in his arm in his vein, and I felt fine. And I was talking to them. How did he feel? 
So the, first, the one guy actually had a needle phobia and he was like, my friend recommended this. So I thought I'd give it a go. And I was like, well, how are you feeling? He goes, I don't feel any different. And his actually wasn't going in fast enough because he had his arm bent. So it had to go straight down. And the other guy had just flown in from Australia and uh, he'd been on a long haul flight and he was trying to wow boost himself that's the kind of lifestyle you read about like in, yeah. you know, if I occasionally nick a magazine from first class do you know what I mean it says <laughs> yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing doesn't it on a long haul flight be sure get when you get to Shoreditch to yeah. Yeah, and I'm like who the fuck actually lives like that this bloke this here. guy yeah now time to check in with your other challenge which of course is your challenge for the series which has morphed into becoming Christmas number one what is the uh, latest on that Loads of listeners got in touch offering their services, including Tim Jackson. He was Record of the Week once, remember? Yes, I do remember. Well, yeah, so he's a singer that we featured on the show. Yeah, but he's going to play piano. Okay, they're cool. On right. record, which is great because who doesn't love a penis? Pianist. <laughs> We're not in the foxhole now. And so we've got Tim Jackson on piano and um, Tom Meadows on drums. Are you are you still, like, angry about that? Or yeah, right? see, yeah, Molly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. that was the other thing keeping me up this week. <laughs> but what we really need, and if you are one, is a trumpeter. We need somebody to do a trumpet solo, and we need them now. And when do we get to hear the final product? The first exclusive play. <laughs> Radio 1 wanted it. Will be. Yeah, they did want it, but, you know, we had to say no. We'll be on this podcast will it? next week. So in next Tuesday's Zeitgeist, we're going to hear the world premiere of the final version of The Sounds of Christmas. Yes, I can hear how excited you are. I'm very excited. So it's an all-star podcast lineup. It is, yeah. We've got some amazing names. Who? I'm not going to tell you yet. I think you need to wait until you hear the track. That's what we're going to do. We're going well, to wait. Well, I, I can tell I'll... you now who's on it. No, you can't. I can. Ollie Mann's on it. Uh, because I AKA spent... AKA Bono. Uh, <laughs> I spent... The other... I thought, you know what? If I have to record my vocal, I'm not a professional singer. Hmm. In front of you, even in front of producer Matt, I'm going to feel a bit like you preparing for a vitamin drip. Right. So I recorded it in the privacy of my own home. Have you? I've given it three shots. <laughs> Would you like to hear a listen? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah this cool. is my raw vocal. This is Ollie Mann singing The Sounds of Christmas. So turn off the carols and jingle the bells. Let's boil the chestnuts in stew. Don't light any fireworks, it hurts like hell, cause Christmas reminds me of you. Oh, the sounds of Christmas remind me of you. <laughs> Soulful. Have you ever done soul singing? You're deep. Well, the song that you've definitely co-written is slightly out of my range. I think we can agree. Although my solution to that clearly was taking the whole thing down. I think it works. Two octaves. You're like, oh. Hang on, I'm going to try your oh. Hang on. Oh, 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 oh. I sound like a gorilla. Excuse me. No, no. My O-O-O's, I think, should be on the final record. Because originally, <laughs> I've been saying all along, like, I want the Bono line. Sure. I think the line that's so good, it's as if it was written for me, partly because I can't sing, partly because my voice is so deep, is, oh, people are going to love it. Yeah, I, it's, it's borderline too, it's too operatic. You, you may be a little sniffy about my take of the song, Ollie. Um, just before we recorded today, uh, we, we put some of your vocal tracks down as well. Sure. Here's how that went. 
So how am I supposed to move on and forget? Cause all I want for Christmas is inside my head So turn off the carols and jingle the bells Let's boil the chestnuts in stew Don't light any fireworks, it hurts like hell Cause Christmas reminds me of you The sounds of Christmas remind me of you. I mean, that is a special vocal. I'm a special guy. (laughs) I think we should clarify at this stage that um, we really are doing this Mm -hmm. and uh, the song really will come out and it really will be quite good. There are two reasons for that, aren't there? One is the diversity of talent that we'll have on the final song and the other is auto-tune. In all seriousness, I've just had a tweet. This is live. It's coming in live. Yeah. Somebody asking, so will Pod Aid be a real thing? They're yeah. asking it now. Yeah. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Yeah. You'll hear the final version on next week's show. Um, what are its chances, do you think, in the crowded marketplace for Christmas number one, 2018? It's, it's a tricky business, this Christmas number one stuff. There, There isn't really a front runner at this stage, which is a good sign because it means that the field is open. I mean, I think it's fair to say that your song by Elton John has had more airtime than The Sounds of Christmas thus far. Yeah, so we've got Flake Fleet Primary School, who've got odds of 5 to 1. 5 to 1. Which sounds pretty good to me. Kids Chorus 5 to 1. Yeah, and okay. this is where I fall down on odds. You, you might have to sort of help me out here. Ariana Grande yeah. is with... Uh, she's got Thank You Next, is currently number one in the charts, right? Okay. And this is the, this is a potential for Christmas number one. She's got odds of 7 to 4. Was that even mean? I don't understand odds either. No. Also... In, in that the, means it's the favourite, though, doesn't it? 7 to 4. That's You wouldn't get much money back. 7 to 4 is better than 5 to 1. Yeah, yeah that much I know. Yeah. But we've got to overtake. So there's Sir Alton John, odds 9 to 1. The one that does throw me ever so slightly mm. is Three Lions by Badila Skinner odds oh. of 100 to 1 weird okay um, so well obviously because England did well in the World Cup this year but surely you say obviously what <laughs> well that's the, that must be the reason people are thinking let's re-download it or maybe there's another one of these weird alternative online campaigns and the the uh, bookies have noticed that one because um, Paul wrote to us on facebook.com slash Man and said, Morning, Ollie. Just to let you know, I've sent a request to Bet365 to formulate the odds for Ollie Pitt's pod aid to be Christmas number one. Oh, nice. Um, but then he responded with the answer from Bet365, which was following a review of your price request, we are unfortunately unable to offer a price on this selection at this point in time. Please be advised that this is a trading decision. And basically, it's because they haven't heard of it. They can't form a market. So well, we don't on. know what the odds on Pod Aid are, but they're surely at least Elton John levels. Well, yeah, no, but if you put it, put a quid on, you know, million to one. No, you, you can't. What? No, they no, can't no. form a market. Oh. Because they don't know what it is. See, this is They why don't I'm listen to bookie. podcasts. They don't understand, Ollie, the movement that you've created. We, I well, we have created a movement. You, somebody else is stealing the idea at the moment as well, and that's I'm a Celebrity. So I'm a Celebrity is on TV at the moment. Yes. And they are doing the same thing as us. And they're, they're pushing, they're using their audience to try and get Nick Knowles to Christmas number one. He's got odds of 33 to one at this stage. Oh, and shit. he's got an entire ITV-backed show behind him. Oh, that doesn't it. make me feel good, Ollie, because... I mean, you were talking about, you know, the thousands of people who download podcasts, but it's probably smaller, isn't it, than the I'm a Celebrity audience? Well, And if he's 30 to 1... On the ACAST network, it's millions. Yeah. So we have potential... Fine, but... And I think as well, like... No, but if, if I'm a celeb are ranked at 30 to 1, it's going to be Ariana Grande, isn't it? It's and I'm sorry, I don't Knowles. mean to... I don't want it's to shit Knowles. on your parade. I'm just saying, you've got to be honest. I think, look, be realistic. I've said all along, mm. in fairness to me, 
you have got a chance. I genuinely think you have potentially, because it only took 85,000 to get to number one last year for Ed Sheeran, genuinely got a chance of getting in the top 40. Set your sights on that. I'm setting my... Because you're going to have a massive crash, Ollie. I'm worried about what's going to happen in January. What is the point of setting your sights on the top 40 when you can set it on number one? I suppose the thing that you do have on your side is that it is a Christmas song for charity mm-hmm. and people like supporting charity. Uh, maybe the time is right now, Ollie, for you to announce to the listeners which charity you've selected. Uh, it would be a good time if I had to... Haven't thought about it, have you? No. I suspected that might be the case. We have had lots of man fans writing in to say which charity they think we should support. Uh, And obviously there are some really great contenders out there. But I've been thinking about it, and I think, you know, again, if we're being realistic about how much money we're going to make here, I think it would be nice to support perhaps a smaller charity that could really do with a smaller amount of money if it doesn't go interstellar, if all of your dreams aren't realised. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, but I just want you to know that it will go on for sure. astronomical success. Well, all the more so, it will mean more to a smaller charity. Sure. Uh, and uh, man fan Martin Lieb uh, wrote in a couple of weeks ago, and he said... Ollie, my son Samuel started a charity while in hospital. It's called Samuel's Charity. I now work three days a week there. It's registered and we've raised nearly £200,000 since we began supporting children's wards that have little or no funding or support and lack the basics like toys, Wi-Fi and essential equipment. Sounds like the perfect charity. That's brilliant. Yes, I think we will make a difference to them. I think this because I actually went to meet Martin this week to break the news to him that we're going to be supporting his charity. Uh, And you'll hear that interview next. Uh, But, uh, Ollie, before then, best of luck with this last-minute scrambling, getting everything together. Don't need it. Yeah, it's going to be a masterpiece. Of course it is. Uh, We will hear that on next week's show. But first, let's hear this week's record of the week. It's by Leighton Stone alt-pop band Banfi. The track is called Marlow, and it's available to stream now. Time to meet Martin Lieb. He is a man fan and he is a one-man fundraising machine. When he turned up to Modern Man HQ, he was wearing a tight-fitting Action Man polo shirt, perfect for raising money at sponsored sporting events, emblazoned with the words, Samuel's Charity. So I started by asking him how Samuel's Charity came into being. Samuel was in hospital. He'd been in the ward for a few months. And he was quite upset that there was very little for the kids there. He could see that there was 20, 30 kids in his ward and they were very ill and there was very little for them to do. The food was really poor quality. And he just turned to me one day and said, Dad, I want to start a charity. I want to help the other kids in this ward. How old was he at this point? Nine. With cancer? Yeah. Yeah. He had a very, he had a very rare type of cancer and um, he'd been in a couple of months. And so what's his experience on a day-to-day basis there? What, what are the things that are lacking? contact with the outside world 
Uh, one of the hardest things that happens to a kid in hospital is is that they get cut off from everything around them. One of the worst things is they spend 24 hours a day with either mum or dad. Somebody's always got to be there and their friends don't come in. And to have that contact was something he missed greatly. The biggest thing he saw, apart from the lack of games and toys, was the quality of the food. It was a trolley that was left up in the corridor for about 20 minutes. And then somebody would come around, knock on your door, ask if you wanted something. And as parents, we played a game. It was, can you guess what dinner is by looking at it? Most of the time we failed. (laughs) It was really bad. We wouldn't eat it. And you can imagine how hard it is trying to get a child that's really ill to eat something that, that awful. You know as a parent and your child very frequently knows that they're in a place that is that you don't want to be in. And no matter how much paint, no matter how many toys you bring in, that un- undercurrent of pain is always there. They've always got that knowledge that in five minutes I'm going to be taking something horrible or somebody's going to come in and do something like an injection or a procedure and they're constantly on edge. Every time that door opens, you see their eyes go to the door and it's always there and they live with that all the time they're in there. It can be beautiful and pretty, there can be all the games in the world, but that's always sitting in the back of the mind. Our aim was to raise £500 to buy some meals for the kids in the hospital, in that ward that he was in, and it just took no time for people to go, of course, and just throw some money at it. And then we thought, well, what else is there? We talked to the nurses and the and the ward sister. Well, we need this, we need that. We could. It would be great if we could do this. Did, did they like you getting involved? Because some people would say... They loved it. Really? Oh, it was... Because some people say it's, it's like criticising. Yes, you know? yes. The nurses are in an unfortunate situation where they are the ones that know just how hard it is for the kids. And actually, it's the play specialists. And these are the people that, that are so often unnoticed. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a yeah. play specialist. A play specialist is basically a healthcare professional that is there and trained that looks after the child and they will know each one of the children, know what's going on with their treatment. The doctors and nurses will require them to be there to help them through any awful procedures and they'll be the person that actually plays with them. A big part of what they do is distraction. So if there's a procedure going on, anything from an injection to a catheter, whatever it is, they'll be there and they form a strong bond with a child every day Sam had to have two injections uh, they were blood thinners because he had blood clots and each time he had them he screamed they were awfully painful and having somebody there that he knew like there'd be me or his mother but having that play specialist there even though he didn't want to have it he would still go through with it that person would be there one of us would be holding him one of us would be holding his hand and they would get him through it so what was his prognosis at that time? When we first went in, it was a 75% chance of survival. He'd gone in on a Friday night to hospital and they'd basically said, go away. Because, you know, Friday night in A&E, he wasn't bleeding to death. They booted him out. They said it was growing pains. The next time we went in, we kind of forced the issue. And then he had some blood tests. And the day after that, um, the doctors took me and his mum into a room and explained that they were 96% sure it was cancer. Did you know as soon as you walked in that room oh, yeah. what kind of message it was going to be? That walk you'd never forget. You know what's coming. Parents with kids in hospital like that, they know that walk. When the doctor says, we need to go and talk in the room, and you know something's bad's coming, because they never say good things in there. What did they tell you to tell him? 
That was up to us. It was a hard decision to not to tell him from my point of view. I wanted to be honest with him. One of the things you find with children in hospital is they grow up immensely quickly. Emotionally, they grow very, very quickly. And often, too many stories you hear of parents saying that their children often look after them. Sometimes because they feel they are responsible, because they're the ones that are ill. And when Samuel suggested you start the charity, what was his prognosis there? They thought they could treat it with a standard regime of of chemo, which also has uh, steroids as part of it, because steroids helps the chemo work. And often you lose your hair and you get a huge appetite for a week when you're on the steroids and a bit of roid rage, which was quite humorous to see because all of the nurses and the doctors know about it. But when you see your child absolutely blowing up or being ridiculously inappropriate with a nurse or a doctor, it's shocking. And that's the first point when we got something done because he was in ICU uh, not long after he was admitted um, because one of the symptoms was he had a, a lung infection. So um, he had a lot of uh, liquid building up in his lung. So he had to have it constantly have it uh, drained out. Very painful doing that. And it meant his heart rate was low. So he had to go to ICU. And he had to go up the, the, the uh, matron there for um, the poor quality of food. Because that was the thing he wanted to change with the charity. It was the first thing he wanted to do. So uh, he had to go at her. And then they had the catering manager come see him. And he had to go at him. And the catering manager said, OK, here's my number. You need anything, you give me a call. Yeah, that's great. What about everybody else? And what else did the charity achieve? Well, we were getting things for the ward, uh, like a toaster, mugs, spoons. We were asking the nurses and the other parents what we needed. You know, we raised some money through Facebook and then we were like, we've got some money. What do we do with it? Um, we knew the food was awful. But um, just buying teaspoons, there was a toaster that had broken that was a, uh, you know, often toast was one of the things that kids wanted to eat. Coffee, I think we got for the parents just so we could make it through the day. Uh, Little things like that to start with. It must have felt like quite empowering because um, even though it's a small thing buying a toaster, Mm. you have no control over your child's condition and the chemotherapy is not working. This is something you can do. Yeah. A lot of the time you were... You felt helpless as a parent. I mean, your job is to look after your children. And you felt like a a particular failure when your kids are ill and you can't do anything about it. There's a certain type of guilt that that you often feel that you should have done something different or better. And that if it hadn't been you as a parent, then they wouldn't be in this position. What do you mean? I mean, how could that possibly... It's, it's an irrational guilt. It's not yeah. rational. It's just you constantly think, maybe if I'd done this or I hadn't done that, maybe if I'd seen it sooner, if I'd been a better parent, if I'd been more aware, I could have caught this quicker. Maybe if I'd known more, I could have done more. You look into their eyes and you, and you know they're just pleading with you. Take this pain away. Stop this. And when you can't do anything about it, rationality isn't of any use. You just feel like you're helpless. And you blame yourself. How old was Samuel when he died? He was nine. It had only taken about five months 
five and a bit from the time that we got that we went to hospital to when he passed away and it's not something you can get advice for apart from as you're saying other parents that have been through the same thing and that's a very small number of people and it's something that's very difficult for people to talk about The, the time that you needed that advice the most was before it happened so you could prepare and deal with it when it happens life pretty much shuts down you become often very insular I felt like the whole world was behind a pane of very thick smoke glass I was in the world but I really didn't feel like I was of that world there was my daughter and I still looked after her 50% of the time because not long after Sam got ill myself and my wife split up so the time I had with Evie was my only contact my only the only relationship that I felt was really strong because it was there every day I still had my my parents and they were a great support and some friends and family too but that day-to-day who's there I kind of shut off from a lot of people and of course you've got to talk to your daughter about it that was the worst day of my life I came back from the hospital the next day and I'd asked everyone not to say anything to her and I sat her down and I just said to her your brother's passed away he won't be he won't be back did she know he was unwell in hospital yeah she'd visited him quite a lot she she got it she was just at that age where she understood what was going on and you could see there was a sadness in her and a way that she'd changed because even though Sam didn't live with us he was he'd come down every other weekend with me she idolised him the bigger brother, he and he loved her to bits as well. I mean, it was it was the day after I told my daughter that that Sam had gone, you fall apart. And as much as I tried for that not to be the case, because I knew I needed to be there for Evie as well, because I knew she was going to be going through all sorts of hell as well. It was just you know there was two weeks where I was just really ill, and everything, your whole body just you've been clenching for months and months and months and can't be sick, can't be tired, can't be away. It's, and then you just, oh, and I had a real bad infection and a chest infection and a foot infection. And I was, oh, I was awful. It's in hospital on meds. I was telling them what meds I need because I've just come out of like six months of being constantly involved in his care. I mean, I've not lost... The closest person to me that I've lost is my father. And the experience that I have of grief with that, although it's different because at some point you expect your parents to die, albeit my father died very suddenly and I wasn't expecting it at that moment, is the thing everyone says of three months later, four months later, you know he's dead and yet suddenly you find yourself wanting to tell him something on the phone or you think he's about to walk in the room. I imagine that's the thing that's hardest. You wake up and you forget for a moment Mm. and then you remember. Yeah. The normal things that you do, birthday parties is a is a classic one. There's a chair that's empty. You expect to see him there. Or Christmas. All these little things that, that you just turn around and you expect that seat to be filled and it's not. Sometimes it just catches you, you know. Sometimes on the street you're walking along and you see someone and you think that's 
it's almost natural to go, oh, Sam. And that's not him. It's somebody else. And even though he would be 14 now, blimey. There was, not long ago, only a month ago actually, Evie is now older than him. Hmm. That wasn't a day I told anybody about. I didn't want to tell her, especially. You just don't know how, how that's going to affect them. And, you know, I don't want to add anything more to it. It's not like we hide the fact. It's not one of those things where you hide it away. You know, I don't... I couldn't do that. That's not who I am. And I don't think Evie would be able to do that. And I don't think Sam would want that. I think he'd want to be part of our lives. I want him to be part of my life. But when you first lose a child, I understand what you're saying. Mm. You feel alone. Yeah. But actually, in reality, you've got support. You have Hmm. both of your ex-partners. You have your family. You have all these people that are donated to the charity. Mm -hmm. What's it like five years on? Because this is something that obviously you still want to talk about. You Mm. wrote to us and said you want to talk about this. But I imagine it's something your colleagues, your friends, your family don't want to talk to you about. They they don't know what the parameters are. No, no. When it first happens, quite a few people don't get it. It's one of the things we talk... I go to brief parents group in Milton Keynes and it's one of the things that comes up all the time one day on or or a decade on people have trouble talking about it you're right the parameters are unknown about it unless you've been there and if you've been there then then it, it's it is a, a club that nobody wants to join you understand what it is only because you've gone through that that, that time of of losing something that you never thought would happen. Like you said, with your parents, you expect it hurts. I bet it hurts like hell. I've been very lucky. I haven't lost my parents. But you, it happens and you and you think about them. And even my dad thinks of his mum and dad. And he talks about them and has a chat with them. And it's, it's, it's gorgeous. But you still see there's a sadness there. But five years on from losing a child, no, people think you've got over it. You moved on. People think it hurts to bring it up. Or that they don't know what to say, or how to say it. Some people are great. In fact, the person that was the best was a nephew. Not long after Sam had died, and with all the other adults saying, "Oh, how are you doing? You know, what can I do for you? I'm there for you." You know, all all these nice thoughts, but not hugely useful. One nephew, a fourteen-year-old, came up and said, "He just gave me a hug and said." I'll never know what you're going through, but I'm here if you need me. And I think that was probably the best thing somebody said to me. Because they don't know what you're going through, and I don't want somebody to try and feel what I'm going through, because they're not going to get it. And I don't want them to even put themselves in that position. At what point, after he died, did you decide to carry on the charity? I was doing it... A few weeks after. It didn't really stop. People were saying, oh, I'd love to help in some way. How can we do this? And we'd already planned this Tough Mudder. So we come along to that. The assault course? Mm, mm-hmm. Yep. I did that in the October. Sam passed away in the January, and it had been okay. planned for the October. So that we'd already planned that the year before. The thing about doing a Tough Mudder is the narrative is 
look at me, I'm this bereaved dad, but look, I'm superhuman, I can do this amazing thing. And actually what you're describing is someone who doesn't feel like that. No, no. I knew what Sam was going through was, was, was awful. And I just wanted to go to do something that was tough as well. Mm. It wasn't about being superhuman. I felt so guilty that I was sitting there and he was going through that and I would have done anything to switch places. And you almost want to put yourself through something so there's an almost a small, minute connection that mm. you're going through something tough and you can almost have a, a little, little bit of solidarity about that. And do you see what I mean, though? Some of the people watching or supporting you might have thought, almost, here's a happy ending. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. And as you've just said, there isn't a happy no. ending. It goes on. Yeah. But but they're saying, look, he's been through the ringer. We're going to support him. And look, he's done the assault course. Job done. Yeah. It it doesn't it doesn't stop. I think every year I, I try and find something harder to do. This year we did an eight hour overnight tough mudder, which is about twenty two miles. Next year we're going for a longer one, London to Paris bike ride. It, you know, Olympic triathlons next year. You just try and find something more. I think I'm trying, in a way, to keep that feeling of doing something ridiculously hard, because it's almost like a, a connection. It helps because from a fundraising point of view, you find more people to do things or then more, the harder the thing is to do, the, the more people notice. Like a 10k run for some people is pretty tough, but for... Yeah, you're know, looking at somebody for whom that would be very tough. Yeah. But, uh, but 10k is, I mean, a lot of people do 10k runs all the time. Some people, they have to do a lot of training for it. But when, when there's so many people coming up to you daily going, sponsor me on this. If it's sponsor me for a 10K, they're like, nah, it's a fiver. Sponsor me for like, you know, a marathon worth of, of um, obstacle course through the night. It, it grabs attention a bit more. And the charity now is much more than a PayPal account linked to Facebook, oh, yes. isn't it? Yeah, we're, we've been registered for three years. I get DBS checks uh, all the time because I go into children's wards. And what about people listening to this who say... Aren't there already charities for, essentially, children who have cancer, for brightening up wards? Aren't there already charities that support people who are terminally ill? Why give money to a small, specific charity? Yeah, there are loads of charities. There's loads of amazing charities. But there are so many wards that have no support. And we didn't realise this until we were in one of them. We also help individual children where their, their parents can't help them. Sometimes we get, we'll buy them a, a final wish or a, a gift if they're very ill or terminally ill. And that's because a, a nurse or, or a health professional refer them to us. But the majority of the time is if people come to us saying that they need support on a ward. And it's word of mouth that's done this. And we have to limit at the moment how many wards we can help because we have very limited funds. We've raised £200,000 in the last five years. Wow. Yeah, but when you put it in perspective, it cost to 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 redecorate a ward it's 150,000 pounds for a decent sized ward one of the biggest things we see is that even within a hospital there'll be wards that have got a lot of support and there'll be wards of none there may be a ward where a famous person their child's been looked after there and, and they put their name towards it and they get lots of support down the corridor there's a ward where they can't afford to buy pens and paper and paint those are the wards that we help and there's too many of them 
I know if I went out and actively searched for them, there'll be a lot more. And it is it is in those places where a child has to spend so much time, where they're in a place that is painful and dark and scary, and it only takes a short amount of time for them to start receding within themselves, often depression and, and, and loneliness. And all of those things together make it very hard for that child to get through a day. Now, from a parent's point of view, that destroys you. You see a child slipping away from you each day, and it's it's heartbreaking. Especially when you can't do anything about it. Have you been back to the ward Samuel was on? A lot. What makes you go in? I mean, some people would never, ever go back to the hospital, never mind the ward. I think part of it's for the charity, because I know it does help. Part of it's cathartic, because I want to face it. I don't want to hide away from it. It's the thing that hurts the most, and I often walk past his room where he passed away because he died in the hospital. He was too sick to leave. And the nurses were just unbelievably good to us. And I sat outside his door for about an hour and a half after he passed away and I wouldn't let anyone in. And those memories are always there. But without facing it, you're never going to get past it. And I see plenty of parents that are struggling to get past that point, that anger and that pain. And unless you deal with it, unless you go through the pain, of course, of, of, of the loss, you almost have to embrace it and let it in instead of forcing it away. And going frequently, yeah, it triggered me like heck all the time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every time still does. I went today. I didn't even go onto his ward and just walking around the building so much. All of the memories and the smells and the sounds. And yet I'm not going to stop doing it. The fact that it triggers me reminds me why I'm doing it as well. People want it to be one or the other, don't they? They want it to be either it's cathartic or it's triggering. Yeah. If it's triggering, it's bad, don't do it. If it's cathartic, it's good, you're getting over it. Mm-hmm. It's both. Yeah, absolutely. What's the thing you're proudest of that the charity has achieved? It's called Samuel's Charity. It's named after him. What's the thing that you've done that you think, well, I've really honoured that legacy. That's the thing I'm proudest of so far. I think the first thing to say about that is it isn't, it isn't us as a charity that's done it. I didn't raise that money. There were a lot of people involved going out and doing different types of events, raising the money. You know, after the first few months, nobody would talk to me about donations. They were sick of hearing about it. You know, there's only so many times you can ask your family and friends to sponsor you and they just go, no, no, go away. No, that's about the eighth time you've asked, get lost. It's everybody, it's people I've never met that do it. Those are the real people that make the difference and keep the charity going. And you hear this from other charities, you know, you can make the difference. And and some of it, you just think that's just awful corporate speak. But realistically, for a small charity, 
it is the lifeblood. About 80% of the money that we've raised has been from people I've never met and probably never will. I try to get to go to every event that we're at, like all the Tough Mudders and the parachutes and the abseiling and cake bakes and karate events that, that, that people are supporting us through. But the actual people that give the money, I may never meet. So from what we've done, we're more like a conduit. We know there's a problem there and the nurses say, this is what we need. And then we take that message and we say to people, this is what's going on in this ward. Now that ward's okay, but this one isn't. Can you help us with this? And they go, yeah, okay. And they give us some money. And that's, that's what we do. It took about a year and a bit, but we completely transformed the quality of food in the wards, all the kids' wards. After Sam went, went, went ballistic at them, it became, especially after he died, it became a real big thing for me. A completely changed menu, upgraded. It was beautiful. I mean, it's not amazing. There wasn't a... Uh, a kitchen on the ward like most kids wards has but the food became food you could recognize and kids could choose through a menu and order and then call up it was a huge change and also you've actually added wi-fi to some wards well we haven't added it we've just been a bit of a catalyst for kicking somebody's ass about it so at st george's there was when we were there the wi-fi coverage was spotty at best depending on which room or where you were in the wards across all of the wards not just the kids wards and it was very expensive. It was a day pass, three, four quid a day for Wi-Fi. And then when you'd paid for that, only one person could be on it at a time. Every time I go into a ward, every time I go to a hospital, it's the thing that parents and the, and the staff talk about because it covers entertainment. It keeps the kids entertained for hours with things like Netflix and, and Facebook, depending on how old they are, and emails. They can keep up with their schoolwork. If they keep up with their schoolwork, they feel like they are still an equal with their friends. And it's a huge thing. They get to still be part of that world instead of feeling like they've been left behind. They get to watch stuff. They get to... And as a parent, I got to work. So we changed it. I went to the IT manager at the time and not so subtly had a word about McDonald's does it free, why isn't it here? Popped him around <laughs> the wards. And funnily enough, very shortly afterwards, they put in new Wi-Fi boxes across all of the wards, kids' wards. And then I spoke to the supplier of the Wi-Fi. And again, magically, that became free. It cost them nothing to just to go, here's, here's a portal. It had already been paid for. The hospital already had the infrastructure. That transformed all of those wards. It was the one biggest thing, I think, outside of the food that made a difference. Because the food was great from a medical point of view. The children had something they could actually choose to eat. There is so much empirical data that says that if you've got a better environment, a calmer, a safer, a more peaceful and more happy environment, your treatment outcomes are going to be better. You know, I still go onto the ward and people say thanks. This is four years on and they're going, that's great. We got the Wi-Fi. I remember that. We've still got the old little posters up going, oh, you've now got free Wi-Fi. And it was this old tacky poster that I did on PowerPoint just telling people how to get online. It was free. All you have to do is go here. That makes me smile a lot because I know... Four years on, oh God, three, four years on, how many people that's touched? How many people? Well, Martin, I think what you're doing is great. <laughs> you might be aware, I know because you are a man fan, that we are mm. running this ridiculous challenge on the show at the moment. Ollie Pitt is trying to get to Christmas number one. <laughs> <laughs> we have this charity single without yeah. a charity at the moment. Would you allow us to donate the proceeds to you? Thank you, that would be fantastic. Chances are it'll be about 300 quid. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, 
every little help. Yep. And we'd really like to support your charity. Thank you. And the song is pretty good as well, by the way. Yeah, isn't it? It is. A I had to good eat my words. <laughs> I was I was humming along at the same time as you last. It was very good. I was impressed by that. Okay, man fans. So we have the charity and we have the song. Now we just need your money. What could your money buying our Christmas single raise for Samuel's charity? Even £300 raised makes a big difference. We'll buy a tablet for a ward or some tablets and they'll loan them out to the kids because a lot of kids that don't have their own tablets. Sure. And that transforms their day from uh, distraction so that when they're having a injection or they're having some horrible set of medicine they can be watching a film and before they know it's done we pay for netflix um on many wards so they've got you know sign-ins that the nurses look after so there's always something for them to watch but here's the thing if we want to be ambitious it would be amazing to buy samuel's charity an accuvane here's martin explaining what one of those is used for now an accuvane is a handheld scanner that shows your veins. So it's about the size of a, of a, a really big mobile phone. And it, it's just a, a light that you shine on the skin, but it shows every single vein. And what that means is that you can have an injection done first time, every time. This one piece of equipment transforms a child's ward. That £4,000 is probably the, the best £4,000 I spend whenever I get the chance to, because not only does it cut down on the pain across a ward and some wards use them 20 30 times a day it is the smiles and the knowledge that you know that you've done something not just on the that was nice they've got something that looks nice it's fun to play with but medically you've really helped okay so you've quantified this for us 300 quid realistic target that would be nice fantastic if we can get to four grand wow that would make a difference that would be an accuvane for for a child's ward which would change that whole children's ward okay if ollie pitt's listening to this that should give him the kick up the arts he needs <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <Four Ollie. grand. laughs> martin lieb from samuel's charity and our single the sounds of christmas will be available to buy from friday december the 14th but if you're listening to this in the future and you're not feeling very christmassy and you just want to support samuel's charity that is also fine by me <laughs> you can donate to them directly at samuelscharity.co.uk. Right, a complete change of pace next. Alex Fox talks bug chasing after this. And now for something completely different. It is time for the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hey, singing superstar. You've put me right on the spot here. <laughs> We've just been recording Alex's contribution to our Christmas single. Which How was I it? didn't know that I was going to contribute oh, to. Oh, come on. We, we would be neglecting our duties to uh, rein in fellow podcasters if we couldn't get Alex Fox to be on the record. Well, Ollie Man, what you don't know about me is that age 12, when I had just joined high school, I was singled out to do the opening solo of Once in Royal David City in the bell tower of a church. I had a terrible ear infection. My eardrum exploded during uh, the Mary M was the mother mild bit. And for the next three years of high school, I was known as that girl who screeched in church. <laughs> so actually, this was a bit like taking back the power for me. I feel like I've rebranded Christmas songs for myself and I now feel a lot more positive about them. Wow. 
I mean, you've really taken a personal journey on what other people might call a frivolous contribution to Christmas single. If you asked me to play a role, I will take that role play seriously. You had your eyes closed whilst you were singing, like you were really <laughs> feeling the music, and I was wondering what you were thinking. I was thinking about Ollie Peart. <laughs> of course, that's the motivation that he's been telling everyone to sing with. Uh, it's time to answer your questions of sex. Let's open up our mailbag and see what question of ballbags has fallen within this week. It's from Bob, who says, Alex, I like to have sex with a lot of different guys. Repeating partners reduces my interest. And in addition to that, I'm thrilled by risky situations. I can't understand why, and I do try to avoid it, but when a partner insists, specifically if I've had a couple of drinks, I usually give in and accept having bareback sex. That's anal sex without a condom, right? Oh, it's it's any sex without a condom. Any penetrative sex without a condom. Privately, I fantasise about posing and bug chasing. (laughs) We're going to have to define those in a minute. Uh, That troubles me a lot because I can't understand why I'm drawn to these situations and I generally take care of my health. I'm considering taking PrEP... That's an anti-HIV drug, isn't it? That's right, yeah. But even with PrEP, I'm still exposing myself to several other STIs. So, Alex, is there a way I can overcome this attraction I have for putting myself in potentially harmful situations? Ooh, there's a lot in here, Ollie, but let's kick off by defining posing and bug chasing. Posing actually has two definitions. One is the opposite of negging. That's not what this guy is talking about here. But just to be absolutely clear, in case listeners hear this in another context, whereas negging is saying something unpleasant about a person uh, when you're trying to pull them or attract them uh, in order to get their attention and undermine them and potentially make them more vulnerable to your seduction. That's my relationship with Ollie Pitt. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. You do neg Ollie P on the regular. Or well, posing is a word that some people use to mean the opposite, i.e. saying something really positive about someone and giving them a compliment. However, that's not what Bob means. He means posing as in deliberately having unprotected sex with somebody who is HIV positive with the objective of uh, catching the virus yourself. The actual objective or the the thrill? I mean, it's weird to even think, get my head in, in this place, but is, is it the thrill that you might contract it so you're not deliberately actually hoping you will well we can delve into that because there's a lot of factors at play here but just to give a definition of another phrase he's used there bug chasing Uh, bug chasers are people again who put themselves deliberately in positions where they are trying to contract an sti most commonly hiv there are even supposedly bug chasing parties when lots of people who are hiv positive get together with those who are negative who want to contract the virus and attempt to pass that on. Why? Well, some people are so absolutely stultified with the fear of potentially getting HIV that they almost see it as an easier option just to get it out of the way, to get HIV so that they can stop worrying about it. Mm. Um, obviously, there are psychological issues there, um, but that is the point of view of some people. Uh, other people see the idea of um taking this ultimate risk to be a huge adrenal thrill for them, putting themselves in a position where they are exceedingly vulnerable and doing something which is incredibly taboo and stigmatised gives them a rush. Um, For other people, it's a dominant submission thing. So if they're incredibly submissive, they might see it as the most subby thing they can possibly do to, in extreme terms, 
give all of themselves to somebody and actually contract HIV um, if, if it indeed it works, which we can talk about in a second. Some other people have expressed the idea that because HIV was so closely related to the um, gay community, that by embracing it and having and posing and bug chasing, that they're almost kind of taking back the power in a way. They're saying we're not afraid uh fuck you all, we're going to go and get this thing and, and and live this life. And as you've said before on the show, which is good news, obviously a diagnosis of HIV positivity isn't in any way the death sentence it used to be and people are living happy lives and monitoring it, especially people in stable relationships, etc, etc. However, I mean, if someone was writing to us and saying, my thing that I really love to do is have sex on electricity cables, you know, or on a train track, you'd, you'd clearly say, well... Think of a way of role-playing that rather than putting yourself in that actual danger. It seems to me that if you're saying, I'm going to potentially shorten my life as the result of something that I find exciting submissively, there is something dramatically wrong going on. Well, I think there is a really big gulf between people's perception of how much this actually happens and the reality. I need to make it absolutely clear for a start that the huge majority of people with HIV have absolutely no desire whatsoever to pass that virus on. Most of them are extremely responsible people. They would do anything they could to protect others from it. They practice safer sex. So what I don't want is this discussion to give anybody the idea uh, that there are tons of people out there living with HIV who also want others to live with it. Uh, There are a very minor few who may feel that way, who may want to pass on the virus because they don't want to be alone uh, or because they are very angry at the fact that they have it and they want to take revenge against the universe as they see it or if they're incredibly dominant people and it's part of an extreme and an extremely dangerous form of subdom role play. But in all honesty, even though there is a lot of talk about um, posing and bug chasing, and there's a lot of porn around it with some very interesting language, if you give it a Google on your average porn site, then you'll find things like men taking dirty loads, uh, passing on their toxic seed, infecting me. Um, there's, there's a lot of language used that suggests that one person is taking over the other person uh, Mm. and planting the virus within them. Well, I presume, in a way, that's a sort of dramatic extension of the interest in barebacking in gay porn generally, isn't it? Like the, the, The idea of safe sex is safe, therefore dull. You know, take the condom off, do something dangerous, that's exciting, it's wild, it's natural... But it sort of it sort of is the more natural kind of sex because the condom's an artificial thing. So you understand where that comes from. The idea that you'd actually be hurt by doing it is the thing that I'm struggling to get my head around. Yeah, some people have even likened the idea of putting the virus in somebody sexually for between gay men uh, to be almost like inseminating a woman if you are a straight man. Oh. So there are a lot of complex psychological elements potentially at play here. But again to dish out some real world news a lot of what you hear about in chat rooms around surrounding this mm. a lot of what you read in reports a lot of what you see in porn actually isn't real people who are role playing bug chasing uh, and pretending to go through that risk it's not actually true in fact the likelihood is that if you are an HIV positive person in the UK 
and you are aware of your status, that is, you know you are a carrier of the virus, then you're likely to be on modern medication. You're likely to be taking antiretroviral drugs. We know now through the partner study and through other modern research, which I've discussed in previous episodes of The Modern Man, that somebody who is consistently and carefully taking their medication, which they would want to do to look after their own health and prolong their own life and uh, ensure their own uh, longevity, then people who are taking that medication, who have reduced their viral load naturally to an undetectable level, actually can't pass the virus on. So finding someone who's HIV positive, who's not treating themselves properly or not receiving treatment, and who is also willing to pass the virus on to you, is quite an unlikely scenario. The only kind of context where you might legitimately be able to bug chase is if you're having lots of unprotected sex with people who may not know their HIV status. And that seems to me to be Bob's scenario, actually, because he says he's interested in posing and bug chasing, but he says it's a fantasy. The risky situation that he outlines as a real-world example is when a partner insists that he has bareback sex and he says yes and he doesn't know whether they have HIV or not. Yeah, Bob's big deal here seems to be that fear and risk give him a major thrill. He is, however, taking risks that pose very real threat to his health. If he did acquire HIV, it does still mean taking antiretroviral medication every day at the moment for the rest of your life. So, Um, with his question... How can I overcome this attraction for potentially harmful situations? What can we advise? Well, this really is a scenario where I think Bob needs to seek the professional help of a sex-positive and understanding counsellor. I think he needs to go to a psychologist and explore the roots of why he is quite so compelled by risk. It's a very natural thing to get a thrill from an adrenalised situation. Mm. Well, we were talking about sharing pics last week. Yeah, exactly. It's not uncommon. Lots of people like the rush of doing something slightly daring or taboo. But in Bob's case, it does sound like things are getting out of hand. Other aspects of his email that give me pause for thought and cause for concern are that he refers to getting drunk, having a drink and then doing things that in his sober state he wouldn't usually do, he Mm. might not consent to. Mm. That's something that needs examination and change. Uh, And he also says that uh, partners are insisting on barebacking no partner should ever be insisting on having unprotected sex with you. If someone ever tries to force you into doing that, whether or not you've had a drink, uh, you should feel absolutely able to walk away, to say no. Uh, And no one should put you in a position where they're trying to force that upon you. And that, of course, is right. But I suppose the point that he's saying is, it's three in the morning, we've both been drinking, I'm horny and sexually excited by the idea of being forced into back sex. So he's not going to say no. And that's the catch-22, isn't it? Yeah, there's certainly some nuance here. Um, And I do think that's something that he needs to explore the roots of with a counsellor. The good news is that there are lots of other ways to practice safer sex that can still be incredibly exciting. You don't have to let go of the thrill, but you can better protect your health and put yourself in a position where you're less likely to have potentially huge regrets in the morning. Now, Bob also mentions prep. And I have to say, in his case, if he is frequently having uh, risky, unprotected sex where he doesn't know the HIV status of the partners that he's having and he's saying he's chopping and changing partners a lot, Mm. um, the brand name for the most common form of PrEP in the UK is Truvada, although there are cheaper generic versions on the market too. 
If you want to get hold of PrEP, it can be quite difficult. At the moment in England, you can only get it on the NHS as part of a trial called Impact. Uh, There are a variety of campaigns that are trying to make it available to more people so that whoever wants PrEP, whoever wants a medical means of protecting themselves against HIV in the uh, instance that they are having a sex life that means that they are more likely to be exposed to that than most, uh, can get their hands on it. And I absolutely back that. People who argue against it say that folks on PrEP will have riskier sex and not use condoms and expose themselves more to uh, other STIs. Uh, in my opinion, I think anything that we can do to prevent the transmission the transmission of HIV is a positive thing and uh, denying people that right is more concerning to me than dealing with other STIs. If you are considering going on PrEP, there are two ways you can take it. You can either have one tablet a day all the time or you can do what's called on-demand or event-based dosing where if you know that you're going to have unprotected sex, then you can take two tablets about 24 hours before sex and then you dose after sex as well. If you are interested in getting PrEP, buying it from a reliable source I thoroughly recommend and so do the Terence Higgins Trust the website iwantprepnow.co.uk there are some sites on the internet that are unreliable and if you buy from those you can't guarantee that you are getting the drug that will actually give you the immunity you need so make sure that if you are getting prep get it from somewhere you know is decent Thank you, Alex, as ever. And if you have a question, protected or otherwise, to send through to Alex Fox's mailbag, what do you need to do with it? You need to send it through by going to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and just hit feedback. And if you want to uh, follow Alex on social media? I'm all over the internet on at AlexFox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And perhaps we might even convince you to post some of that footage of you singing. <laughs> God, please, no. I think I'd rather my sex tapes came out. In either case, a compelling reason to follow Alex on Instagram. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new manbassador. It would have been Melinda, who describes herself as a Hungarian-born, Canadian-raised Australian. But I couldn't work out which territory to give her, so instead it goes to Bav from Long Ditton, who says, Ollie, I am from Long Ditton. Surely Long Ditton is still available. Can I be Manbassador for Long Ditton? <laughs> yes, you can, Bav. Congratulations. I now confirm you as Manbassador for Long Ditton. If you'd like to be a Manbassador, then just leave us a review on your local version of Apple Podcasts, then let us know on Twitter at The Modern Man. Our theme music is by Django Django from their self titled debut album. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.